Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses 23 to 37, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Jesus, the Chosen Savior. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic word, well, that's key evidence of the claims made about him. Well, that's to say, look, we don't just believe in Jesus and preach Jesus because of the miracles that he did and because of his resurrection from the dead. We add to that the marvelous truth that Jesus, well, he's the fulfillment of a thousand years of writing and also the fulfillment of the promises that predate the Bible, promises that were made at the dawn of human life. Jesus is the desired of nations. He is the long-expected one. He's the hope of the human race. We proclaim that the Christian faith is not a new faith, begun 2,000 years ago. We proclaim that the Christian faith is the one historic faith with its roots going back to creation itself. We believe that the final testament is not something that's novel, you know, a new idea in the evolution of religious ideas, but rather It is the final testament. It's the fulfillment of what God has revealed about himself since the creation of the first man and woman, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has said in the past. And it is this truth that makes the Christian faith a global faith. It is to be embraced by all people. It is for all cultural groups. It is for all individuals as well, regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself. The thing you're longing for, the hope you treasure, that perhaps this sin-cursed earth and these troubles that you're undergoing, they're going to see a solution. That hope is not just a vain hope. Jesus is the hope of the earth because he is the hope of all the earth at all times. He is that which the world has longed for since it was first created. And that then is the missionary mandate of the church. You know, sin-cursed, lost, broken, and weary people. The one to save you has come into this world. He is the very one the world hoped for since its beginning. You know, in this series about the missionary mandate of the church in which I trace Paul's first missionary journey, we've come to Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. It is the Sabbath day, and Paul has been invited to address the worshipers in the Jewish synagogue there. We've already noted that, to the most part, it's not surprising, but to the most part, the synagogue is made up of Jews. Yeah, they're the Jews of the diaspora, Jews found in the various regions of Asia Minor, into Europe, into North Africa, and so forth. But in this case, they are in the southern areas of what we now think of as the boundaries of the nation of Turkey. But we've also noticed that there are a good many Gentiles in that synagogue as well as Paul you know, in the introduction of his sermon, makes mention of them, and he acknowledges their presence. And in the portion we're going to read today, we're going to see again that Paul is very careful to acknowledge the sons of the family of Abraham, that is, the Jews, as well as those of you who fear God, which is a reference to Gentiles attending the synagogue because they had come to love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've also noticed that in the first portion of this sermon, Paul has done Well, for lack of a better way of describing it, he's done a a survey of the First Testament or of the Hebrew Bible. Paul himself, a brilliant rabbi, is able in one sitting to give the scope of history of the entire Bible and at the same time 
get to the central issue or the central point of the book. And so Paul rightly explains the three main characters of scriptures, that of Abraham, of Moses, and of David. And in each case, Paul has been explaining that what Israel needed was a savior. In Abraham's time, of course, there was no Israel, but there was the choosing of God who, through Abraham, chose a nation unto himself. And in the time of Moses, Israel's in bondage in Egypt, and God sends Moses as the deliverer or the savior of Israel. And in David's time, Israel was standing at the brink of complete collapse. Their enemies had been ready to destroy them, but God then chose a man after his own heart. See, in all three of these cases, the theme has been salvation. And in David's case, this was quite plain. The people had been demanding a king, and Saul, son of Kish, and his reign had led Israel into tragedy and disaster. The people had demanded a king, and Saul was chosen. But the one the people demanded to have had become a madman. He was an incompetent leader. Eventually, says Paul, God removed him. That's to say, when the Philistines overran the Israelites, and when Saul and his son were killed, this, says Paul, was the sovereign hand of God. Sin demands a day of accounting. But it was a compassionate God who chose David. God saved Israel through David. And had he not done so, Israel would have ceased to be a nation. God's chosen deliverers, well, they are true saviors. Now, at this point, having completed the survey of the First Testament, Paul is getting to his main theme, and he does so quite skillfully, tying David, the great Savior of Israel, to Jesus. So look again at Acts 13, 23. It says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, two things are key to Paul's presentation, and the first is that Jesus is the offspring of David. That is to say, when God promised David an eternal, everlasting kingdom, that would not only rule Israel, but it would rule the world. Well, he promised that the great ruler to come would be the offspring of David. This was well known for those who studied the scripture. And the second, well, it was when the offspring of David would come, Well, he would be the savior of Israel, and that's because Israel, again, would be at the point of disaster, and it's a disaster precipitated by her own sin. So she needed the greatest savior of all time. And I have to cut in here and and have us notice that Israel's disaster is that her sins were her undoing. That's our disaster as well. Estrangement from God, willfully rebelling against his laws, being guided by the impulses of our fallen nature being influenced by the celestial dark powers of Satan. All of this leaves our lives in shipwreck. We need a savior. But again, as Paul has told Israel's history, he has pointed out that God in mercy has sent saviors in the past to his people. Well, then having finished his survey of the First Testament, Paul now moves to the story of Jesus. And please remember, as we read this part of Paul's sermon, that the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection Those were recent events happening only 15 years before. So these events are recent and people are hearing them and they're trying to digest what it all means. So let's continue to read Acts 13, 24 to 25. Paul's saying, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
know, not only was Jesus becoming quite well known throughout the world, but also so was John the Baptist. Yeah, he had led quite a revival in Israel, and his fame had spread among the Jewish diaspora. And among the Gentiles who attended synagogues, people were hearing about John the Baptist. And you might remember from Acts 10 that Peter, when he was preaching to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and to the Gentile friends who were gathered in his house, that Peter had mentioned John the Baptist there. And he had assumed that the Gentiles living in Caesarea, they were quite familiar with him. You might also want to go forward to Acts 19, when Paul's visiting the seaport city of Ephesus, and he finds disciples of John the Baptist there. I mean, all of that to say that the fame of John was well known. And as Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, his congregation would be quite familiar with John. John had been saying that the kingdom of God was at hand. And for Jews, that could only mean that the long-expected Messiah, the offspring of David, would soon enter the world. But as Paul is explaining these recent events, he, he also makes clear that John's ministry, by its very nature, was intended to be a temporary one. And during his ministry, John was frequently being asked questions. It gives you the right to preach. Who authorized this? Who do you think you are? And, and Paul said John had all the answers. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And that leads Paul quite naturally to the story about Jesus. John led the way. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that John hoped for. So now let's read Acts 13, 26 to 29. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been given the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb. See, Paul's saying, I know you've heard that Jesus was killed in Jerusalem. That's absolutely true. Jesus really was executed there. Can that be the Messiah? We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Paul has affirmed several things that the local synagogue in Antioch simply assumed to be true. Jesus was condemned by the religious leaders and through Pilate, he was executed. Those were the bare bones. Those were the very basic facts. But there's so much more to say about those facts. 
Paul says the reason the rulers of Israel condemned Jesus, well, it's because of two things. First, says Paul, they did not recognize him. That's to say, they didn't know who he was. They were blind to his true identity. And when he explains why that was, he says, even though the scripture was being read every Sabbath in their synagogues, they didn't understand the most basic message of those scriptures. Well, you might want to think about that in our own terms. You know, I know of people who've been to church all their lives, and some don't even have the faintest idea of what the scripture is all about. A veil is over their minds. The scripture is familiar to them, but the meeting, well, that remains obscure. And so there's ignorance, says Paul, but of course, there was so much more. The religious leaders put Jesus on trial, and they could not find a reason to have him put to death. And yet, in spite of that, they still put great pressure on Pilate that he should be nailed to the cross. And as I've said before, Luke, who records this sermon, is simply giving us the outline of what Paul said. And I have to wonder to what extent Paul went into the actual details of Christ's trial. I assume he did. Luke, who's the writer of Acts, was at many points Paul's traveling companion, and he was also under Paul's guidance. When Luke wrote the book of Luke, he begins by saying that that book was a part of a major undertaking. Luke had been interviewing all the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, and so no doubt as his mentor, Paul would have directed Luke in that process. Make sure you talk to Peter. Make sure that you get more details on this matter. And so all the details about the trial of Jesus and how it was conducted, along with the fraudulent charges that were brought against Christ, his shameful treatment before Pilate, his brutal execution, well, Paul would have gone over those details with Luke in great detail. And so he was also in a place that in the synagogue in Antioch that day, no doubt he did the same. And so we have to imagine everyone's leaning forward in the synagogue and they're listening to every word and they're transfixed about the details that they might never have heard before. It's horrifying. But after Paul recalls what happened, he returns to the scripture. He says, in all that the leaders in Jerusalem did, they were unwittingly fulfilling the very scriptures they failed to understand. And I have no doubt at this point that Paul would have cited Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. See, Isaiah says that the Messiah would be led to the slaughter like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Isaiah had prophesied that that he would be cut off from the land of the living, that he would be crushed for our iniquities. And at any rate, We can only imagine the silence in the synagogue that day. And still, Paul's not done. After the religious leaders had carried out everything the scriptures prophesied about the Messiah, they were those who took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. Yeah, it's true. The word that they heard was true. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. That's where he died. But they hadn't heard all of it. They hadn't heard what was prophesied in the scripture. So what does one do with that news? So at this point, the congregation that day, well, they would have been stunned. Did the scriptures really predict the horrible death of the Messiah? And if it did, where does that all leave us? And of course, Paul's not done, Acts 13, 30 to 31. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. When Paul moves to the resurrection, he begins with a fact itself. It's not just an article of faith. It's a demonstrable fact of history. And later on, Paul would write to the Corinthian church words that, well, he might have used in the Antioch church that day. So go forward to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. 
And then it records Paul as saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I have no doubt this would have been part of Paul's sermon that day. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the other apostles. He went on to preach to 500 of his followers, and every one of them can be interviewed. He appeared to his brother James, and I too saw him. You can interview not just one or two, but a host of people who can positively tell you they saw him alive after the crucifixion. Well, it's not unlikely that Barnabas, who had come along with Paul, either was among those who saw Jesus, or at the very least, had interviewed hundreds of people who had seen him. Again, try to imagine the synagogue where Paul's preaching. What a reaction there must have been. He's been in the First Testament. He's shown them the the need for a promised Messiah. Now Paul's telling the astonished crowd what he saw. Jesus was raised from the dead, and still Paul's not done. And Paul's about to bring all of this together, both the Scripture and the amazing thing that has been seen. Acts 13, 32-35. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. So notice now that Paul's quoting three scriptures. He wants to say that not only did the the scripture foresee the crucifixion of the Messiah, but it also foresaw his resurrection. We might have expected him to quote maybe the famous, you know, Isaiah 53 verse 10 that predicts that the suffering servant would be crushed, but then he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, Paul could have quoted that, but he goes in another direction. Notice first he begins by quoting Psalm 2 verse 7. And I think he did so because this was a very familiar psalm to anyone who attended a Jewish synagogue in those days. And as I understand it, Psalm 2 was a part of the worship liturgy of the synagogue. And for that reason, most of the people there would have committed that psalm to memory. Perhaps they'd already quoted that psalm in the service where Paul had attended. Now, Paul's saying, look, that's a messianic psalm. And in the psalm, David begins by saying that, you know, the nations are raging against God and against his chosen Messiah. But he says God mocks the rebellious nation. He holds them in scorn. Indeed, God says to his Messiah, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. That is to say, God has enthroned the son, his Messiah, and given him authority over the nations. That's the nature of the Messiah. Now, says Paul, Consider what I've just told you about the resurrection. If the father declares that he's going to enthrone the son, then when was that accomplished, if not at the moment when Jesus stepped out of his own tomb? Then Paul adds the second quote. It's taken from Isaiah 55, verse 3, which says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And the point of that quote would not have been lost on the synagogue there. See, the point of the quote is that God has implicitly stated 
that he would continue his everlasting covenant with David, whose royal family would end in the coming of the Messiah, who would be the eternal king who would reign forever and ever. Now, how does any man do that? Death prevents everyone from reigning forever. But this one, says Paul, this one has risen from the dead and has mastered death itself. And then thirdly, Paul now quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. And this quote would have caused quite a stir. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David, and it begins with the words, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You know, to those of us who are accustomed to reading the psalms of David, well, it seems fairly typical, doesn't it? David knew a great deal about his enemies rising up against him, about sorrows and troubles being multiplied against him. And yet, says Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen lot. The Lord gives me counsel. The Lord makes my heart glad and so forth. And then comes to the promise of verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the land of the dead. Not only that, you will not let your Holy One see corruption or decay or the disintegration of his flesh. Paul then adds, this he knows for certain, that David's body was laid in the tomb and it did decay. And so ultimately, the fulfillment of Psalm 16 can't be in the life of David. Rather, it must be in David's greater son. Jesus, the offspring of David, was not abandoned to the grave. And it's for that reason that Paul can say, I know for certain that Jesus is the fulfillment of this scripture. And that's the hope of the world. Jesus risen from the dead is the authenticating mark that he really is what Israel, and more than Israel, that the entire earth had hoped for since the beginning of creation. All humanity has hoped for a savior, and it is Jesus. Thanks so much, John. You know, I've got to ask you, how is it even possible that the story of the resurrection, we as believers can become complacent How do we guard ourselves against that? Ben, uh, if I go a little further than what I've said today, I want to say that wherever we're at a place where we're not considering the resurrection, we're also at a place where we place our hope in this world. Um, You know, people who, you know, I got to get all the gusto out of this life or are disappointed when this life disappoints them. I mean, that's an indication that you haven't placed your hope in the resurrection, but your hope is in this life. And uh, it's unfortunate but it can happen so easily to believers that we're no longer motivated by the resurrection, but we're motivated by the hope in this world. Let that not happen to us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We're coming to the deadline for your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2022 Israel Experience. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you're thinking of joining us for the Holy Land Adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and join together for a communion service at the Garden Tomb. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, event numbers are limited. 
so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.